People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Now is the time that we bring you the virtual stage of our 12th Achieving Optimal Health Conference at Georgetown University. To experience this talk with all the videos, slides, and graphics, head over to the BBNR website where you can enjoy the entire day of archives of eight incredible speakers for just $29. Go to bbnrconsulting.us and click on store. One more time, visit our store at bbnrconsulting.us. Thanks for staying curious and for living your best life with us. It's truly a privilege to host this guest. He is highly accomplished not only as a military diplomat, but also in the professional world as an innovator at EY. Doro, remember when we first met Cliff yeah. and he was just newly appointed to the chief mindfulness officer position at EY. And he was so excited about the mindfulness program that he was starting to implement. Well, now... It's been hugely successful, and he's become a best-selling author with his book, Mindfulness Without the Bells and Beads. We're so glad to introduce Cliff Smith. Thanks, Doro. Thanks, Tricia. It's an absolute pleasure to be here at the 2022 Achieving Optimal Health Conference. So I'm going to talk to you about mindfulness. And when people see mindfulness on the agenda, there's a very common response I've seen over the years delivering this session. And the most common response is, what the heck is all this hype about mindfulness? And it's not surprising that that would be a common response because any of us could go to our closest grocery store and we will find things like mindful mayonnaise and mindful pistachio nuts. And so you know things are going a little off the rails when companies are using the word mindfulness to try to get you to buy and consume more mayonnaise. But once you peel back the layers of hype, you get to some practical exercise that can have a profound impact on your performance, your leadership, and of course, your well-being. And so I want to do three primary things for you today. I want to demystify mindfulness for you. I want to show you that you don't need any bells, you don't need any beads, you don't have to burn any incense, and you don't have to go get a special cushion to put in the corner of your room in order to practice and benefit from mindfulness. Now, there's absolutely nothing wrong with those things. They have contexts in which they're used, but you don't have to add anything in your life in order to practice and reap the benefits of mindfulness. So we'll define it, we'll demystify it. We'll also talk a bit about the science and the benefits of mindfulness. The research is quite compelling and it's pointed in a very positive direction. And then finally, and perhaps most importantly, we're gonna do some exercises together. Exercises that you can begin to incorporate into your lives immediately if any of this is of interest. And if after the next 40, 45 minutes or so, it's not of interest, that's okay too, this is an invitation, it's not a demand or a command. You know, I think it's helpful to understand where someone's coming from if they're gonna be teaching mindfulness to you or, or introducing it. So I'm gonna take you through my journey through mindfulness. So I was raised by a single mother of three, grew up on welfare, lived in government subsidized housing for much of my childhood. We got toys from Toys for Tots at Christmas time, free lunches at school, that kind of thing. Now I'm not bummed out about my childhood. That's really what got me connected to mindfulness in the first place. My mom entered me into a contest, essentially for poor kids, to win access to a martial arts program in my hometown, and I was one of five lucky kids who won, about 11 years old. And I learned three things in that program that absolutely changed the trajectory of my life once I started to apply them, and these were mindfulness skills. The first thing I learned was how to become mindful of unhelpful internal dialogue. Those internal thoughts that said, I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm not strong enough tall enough, rich enough, whatever enough to even attempt to do the thing I was interested in. 
so I learned to become mindful of those unhelpful internal dialogues and stories and move forward despite them. The second thing I learned was how to become mindful of fear. Learning how fear shows up in my body physiologically, learning how it shows up in my mind, and then learning to move forward despite the experience and presence of fear. And then the third thing was all about focus and concentration, learning to keep my attention where I wanted it to be, as opposed to where the distracting world wanted it to be. And so I took those three skills and I moved forward in my life. And I wish I could tell you that I applied them immediately or I applied them in high school. I definitely didn't. I mean, in high school, I was worried about making money for the family and not making good grades. And so, as you can imagine, my grades suffered. But I already knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to be in the military. I came from a military family. My aunts and uncles served in the military, all my grandfathers. And I felt like I won the world lottery by being born in a free country. And I didn't do anything to earn it. Service was one way to do that. So I graduated from high school on a Friday, barely, and I was in the army on the following Monday. And the day I left for the army, I learned something about myself that day. I learned that I was absolutely terrified of heights and of flying. It was the first time I'd ever been on a plane. Now, I don't mean the typical nervousness you might feel the first time you fly. I'm talking about white-knuckling the armrest, heart pounding out of my chest, sweat beating. Now, clearly I got through that situation, but this was something I realized I was going to have to face and overcome if I was going to explore the world the way I'd hoped and dreamed. I don't know if you know much about the U.S. military, but my first assignment after basic training was a place called Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Well, this is what they do at Fort Bragg. They jump out of planes a lot. And so very shortly after joining the military, I had this opportunity to volunteer to go to airborne school and face that fear. And what I learned through that process is when you can feel that level of fear in the body and in the mind, move through it and be okay on the other side, when you can do that consistently, there's really no goal that's out of reach. Now, this is about three years into the military and I had enlisted for four. And so I have a decision to make. Do I start the process of, of exiting the military or do I re-enlist? I went to see the re-enlistment officer and she printed out a list of jobs that the army had a need for at the time. And one of those jobs stood out as being very interesting to me. And that job was linguist, Chinese linguist to be precise. Now, if you think that kid who barely graduated high school had some unhelpful internal dialogue about his intellectual capabilities, you'd be right. The first thought I had when she offered me that opportunity was, hey buddy, don't you remember? You failed high school English, your native language. Do you really think you can learn one of the most difficult languages on the planet? And I did something that day that I now call catch and release. And I talk about this in my book. I caught the fact that I was generating and believing in this unhelpful internal dialogue. And as soon as I caught it, I was temporarily released from the influence it had over me and enabled me to do the thing that I was pretty interested in, which was sign on the dotted line and learn Chinese. So I, I did that. I went to Monterey, California, where I studied Chinese for 63 weeks straight for 10 hours a day and surprised myself by graduating from that program with honors. And I started to get the sense that, you know, maybe I could go to college. Nobody in my family had been to college. So I started to dip my toe into college by taking college classes in my different military assignments around my career and eventually wrapped them all up into an online undergraduate degree at Bellevue University in Nebraska. Now, I've never been in Nebraska. That part of the degree was all online. Now, this is about 10 years into the military, 
and I decided to leave the active duty and join the Department of Defense as a civilian. Now, if I were to ask you to make a guess, what country do you think the U.S. Department of Defense sends Chinese-speaking civil servants? Well, the first country that popped in your mind probably wasn't Afghanistan. But I deployed to Afghanistan, I came back, I deployed to Iraq. And after those two assignments, I went to a school called the Joint Military Attaché School, which is a school where you learn to become a diplomat, and then it was assigned to the U.S. Embassy in Beijing, China. And so if you look at the arc of my life to this point, poor kid, wrong side of the tracks, learns Chinese, gets educated, to be able to get to a position where I'm representing our country in that capacity was really the pinnacle of my career at that point. And so you would think that I was on top of the world, and I was. I mean, when I got to Beijing, I was on cloud nine, so excited to start that mission. And yet it didn't take me very long before I started to realize and recognize that I was surrounded by a bunch of amazing people. I mean, these folks had the most interesting lives. They went to the best Ivy League schools. They would get asked a question about US-China policy and their responses were brilliant and articulate. And I quickly started to feel like, man, these folks are gonna figure me out. They're gonna realize I didn't come via the same path that they did. Someone's going to ask me a hard question and I'm not going to know the answer. And so it really started to sap my self-confidence. I started to feel like an imposter. When a colleague of mine at the embassy suggested that I apply to Harvard when I was thinking about going to graduate school, I told him it was out of his mind. I was like, you know me pretty well, but maybe you don't know I barely graduated high school. And then the quietest whisper I could come up with, I shared with him that I got my undergraduate degree online. And I went to school online before it was cool. And I'm not sure if it's cool yet, despite everybody doing pretty much everything for the last two and a half years online. But I told him, I don't want to waste my time or my money on something that's absolutely impossible. Now, I don't know how you determine success for yourself. I certainly don't think success is just achievement after achievement. I mean, we could have a whole discussion about what success and true fulfillment is. But I certainly had enough evidence in my life that just because something seems impossible or feels impossible, or my brain tells me it's impossible, doesn't mean it actually is impossible. Yet in that moment, that's exactly what my brain was doing. And I got curious about why. And what I've discovered is it's because our brains aren't designed to make us happy. Our brains are designed to keep us safe. And so what my brain did in that moment was predict what's the likely outcome of this endeavor. And it predicted failure. Well, what does failure equal? From our brain's perspective, failure equals pain. And so in order to avoid that pain, my brain served up the thoughts, the beliefs, and the impulses that would nudge me towards safety. Towards inaction, in this case, to keep me in my comfort zone. Well, our comfort zones are more like cages. Our comfort zones are where our dreams go to die. Fortunately for me, my colleague asked me on a regular basis, did you apply? I think you have a chance. And finally, my catch and release system came online. I caught the fact that I was generating and believing in this elaborate story about how I knew how all of this was going to play out. I knew all the ins and outs of the admissions process. And essentially, all I was doing was just preemptively ruling myself out. I wasn't even allowing them to rule me out. As soon as I caught that story, I was temporarily released from the influence it had and was able to notice the only thing I had absolutely any control over, which was to complete and submit an application. I applied and much to my surprise, and many other people's surprise, I got accepted to Harvard. One of the most emotional days of my life. But long story long, I went to Harvard, I got my master's degree, and as I reflected on that entire process, that's what inspired me to become an executive coach and a mindfulness teacher, and now a speaker and author on mindfulness, because it's such a powerful tool for helping us uncover and transcend our self-limiting beliefs and other psychological barriers to our success and our happiness. 
And so I wanted to share that with you, A, so you know who I am, why I do what I do, but B, to widen the aperture around mindfulness. Most people talk about mindfulness tend to keep it in a narrow frame around well-being, and it does a great deal of well-being. But it also helps with your performance, your leadership, decision-making under pressure. Let's get to the million-dollar question. What is mindfulness? If you take a look at this image on the screen here, you'll see two individuals. They're in a scene, a few trees, the sun's out. Now, I don't know what's going on in the mind of the individual on the left, but they're definitely not present for what's right in front of them. You know, maybe it's their busy season, they're trying to get through it. There's a picture of an airplane in there. Maybe they're already planning their next year vacation. Whatever it is, their body's in one place, but their mind is wandering to the future or to the past, lost in thought. And that's like anti-mindfulness, and we spend quite a lot of time there. And if you take a look at the other individual, they're in the same scene, a few trees, the sun's out, but they're actually present for what's right in front of them. Now, it doesn't mean they're not having any thoughts, but they're not lost in their thinking and their internal dialogue. From a definition perspective, there's really just two key points. It's an ability to keep our attention in the present moment on purpose, and it's allowing that present moment to unfold without getting too caught up in our automatic judgments and, and internal dialogues and, and internal commentary. Well, that's just a book definition of, of mindfulness. Why pay attention beyond that? I mean, you're all probably pretty successful. You've probably gotten to where you are today without a daily mindfulness practice. And so why add this to what I'm sure are pretty busy to-do lists? Well, one of the things companies do is they try to transform themselves. And the reason they do this is because the world is transformed. The volume and velocity of data, of change, of new innovative technologies that companies have to incorporate into their business models just to survive is massive. And so they have to transform, not so they survive, but so they thrive in those transformative world. Do we really think that we as individuals aren't impacted by the changes in the modern world? I'm absolutely certain that the amount of information you have to deal with and process on a regular basis is much more than it was five or even just two years ago. And then there's this blurring of home time and work time. I mean, prior to the pandemic, it was already a pretty blurry line. And then with the pandemic, for many people, there was no line between home and work. And then there's this constant barrage of attempts to hijack our attention in this new attention economy. Now, most people feel like they control their own attention. They decide what they want to pay attention to. But I think that's a bit of an illusion in today's modern world. There's probably one or two applications on your phone that command a huge amount of your attention. And then the company you work for or with and, and your colleagues and your clients, they command a huge amount of your attention. You know, maybe you binge watch a show from time to time, that gets some of your attention. And then what's left over gets issued out to your friends and your family and other loved ones. And if we're honest with ourselves, what's the quality of that attention we're giving our friends, family, and loved ones? Is it high quality, true presence with them? Or is it some form of constantly distracted, barely there type of attention? I submit it's probably the latter. And I believe that from a stat that I looked up not too long ago about how many times we touch our phones on a daily basis. And this statistic totally blew my mind. It said that we touch our phones on average 2,617 times a day. 2,617. Now, what's surprising about that number other than the fact that it's so large, is that there's only 24 hours in a day. Hopefully you get to sleep for some of those. And so when you add sleep time into the calculation, now we're looking at a statistic that's telling us we're touching our phones on the order of one to three times per minute. That is a massive amount of distraction coming from just one single device in our external world. 
And it's not just the external world that distracts us. Like I imagine you've probably driven a car before, you know, have a driver's license. Well, if you've ever had that experience, you've probably also had the experience of driving to a destination and somewhere along that journey, sort of waking up, having missed part of it. Or maybe you've had the experience of driving through an intersection and as soon as you get to the other side, frantically looking in the rearview mirror, hoping and praying that the light you just went through was green because you didn't even notice it. This happens to us all the time. We're driving on autopilot, eating on autopilot, thinking about something we have coming up, maybe being worried about it or anxious about it, or our minds are moving to the past, remembering something we've done, maybe regretting it, maybe wishing we could change it. We spend precious little time in the present moment, and it has some implications on our health and our well-being. According to a Harvard study, we're in that situation about 47% of the time. 47% of the time, our bodies are in one place, but our minds are wandering to the future or to the past, lost in thought. And this number correlates with unhappiness. So the more our minds are wandering, the more likely we are to be unhappy. But why might that be? I mean, isn't thinking good? I mean, didn't thinking give us all this amazing technology we even have available in this life? This technology we're having right now, we're having a virtual interaction, people geographically dispersed around the world tuning into this thing. And this is just one technology. Well, thoughts did create these ideas that led to inventions and eventually products and services, but our thoughts aren't always very helpful. Imagine for a moment your best friend. Whoever that person is, just bring them to mind for a moment. And now imagine your best friend says to you out loud the things you've said to yourself during your most self-critical moments. So let's just say you're doing laundry on a Sunday afternoon. You throw the whites into the washing machine, put the soap in, turn it on, you walk away. You come back 35 minutes later, you open the washing machine, and you notice that all of your whites are now pink. And you realize in that moment that you accidentally washed a red shirt with your whites and your best friend's beside you. And your best friend says to you, what an idiot. You don't even know how to do your laundry. What's wrong with you? Would you be friends with anybody that treated you that way? I know I wouldn't be friends with my inner critic. I mean, we'll say things to ourselves that if someone external to us said them, we might get into an argument with them. And not only do we say those things to ourselves, we often believe it. It's precisely when we're about to make a bold move or you know, put ourselves out there to take some kind of a leadership position that the inner critic pipes in and tells us how we're not the right person for it. Now's not the right time. You know what? Why don't we leave that to the experts? Well, there's a reason for this. We have this thing called a negativity bias. You see, it's more advantageous for us to see a rope on the ground and mistake it for a snake and avoid it. Be like, oh, I don't want to get bit by that snake. I better go that way. Well, that was an error. It's better for us to make that error than it is to make the opposite error. To see a snake on the ground, think it's that rope you've been looking for all afternoon. You bend over to pick it up. It bites you in the neck. End of story. Our ancestors that made that mistake, they didn't make it. Okay, we're not related to them. We're related to folks that made that first mistake. But what we inherited from them was this tendency to see a threat where there is no threat. And if there is a threat, to blow it way out of proportion so that we'll make the safest choice, so that we'll stay in our comfort zone. And we already know what happens in our comfort zone. And see, this automatic process And the brain was very, very useful 10,000 years ago when there might actually be a tiger behind the rustling bush. 
but it's not so helpful today when this process is triggered by things like fear of failure, fear of public speaking, fear of change, fear of criticism. And so this negativity bias, it impacts our entire reality. It creates stories that aren't in service to our goals or our happiness, and it can make otherwise benign situations seem kind of miserable. It's why people in a metal tube going from New York to LA in five hours experiencing the miracle of flight will complain because the Wi-Fi is a little slow or because they had a 15-minute delay, totally overlooking what's pretty amazing about their situation. Now, I'll grant you the Wi-Fi might be a little slow in your aircraft, but it's connecting to a satellite that humans built put on top of a rocket, launched into space, and it orbits our planet. And then using an invisible signal bouncing off of that satellite, you get connected to the largest body of knowledge we've ever amassed as a species. So that's kind of cool. You're taking a trip in five hours that used to take four to six months. You used to have to go on that journey with many, many other people because a number of them would perish along the way because of the arduousness of the journey. So it's pretty amazing that we can traverse the entire landmass of our nation in a better part of an afternoon safely. And I don't know about you, I fly a lot. If there's anything not meeting my expectations or not working as well as it's supposed to be working on my aircraft, I want that broken thing to be the Wi-Fi. I mean, is there something else you'd rather have broken on your plane? The left engine or the tail fin? At least the Wi-Fi is working. And so there's this sort of habit of overlooking what's pretty amazing about our situation and experiences. Now, I don't want you to walk away thinking that mindfulness is about sweeping the negative under the rug, having blinders on to true challenges in one's life, and then only seeing rainbows and butterflies and sprinkles and only having happy thoughts and only feeling joyous feelings. If anybody claiming to be a mindfulness teacher ever tries to teach you that, I'd head the other direction as quickly as possible because they're sending you down a very unhelpful path. But one of the things mindfulness can do for you is it can give you fuller access to the entire range of your experience, as opposed to primarily getting caught up in what's not meeting our expectations. And when you have access to the full range of your experience, not only does your experience of life change, but you have more real-time data with which to draw from in order to make wiser decisions for whatever situation you find yourself in. But we can't keep talking about mindfulness. We have to learn how to cultivate it. Before we do this first exercise, I want to draw a distinction between the terms mindfulness and meditation, because despite these terms being commonly used, there's still a great deal of misunderstanding of them. And so the relationship between mindfulness and meditation is like the relationship between fitness and exercise. Right? You go to the gym and exercise, not so that you're fit in the gym, you go to the gym and exercise so that when you're outside the gym, you have a higher baseline level of fitness. Mindfulness and meditation have the same relationship. You do certain formal meditation exercises so that when you're not doing them, you have a higher baseline level of mindfulness. And then the term meditation is like the term exercise. If I told you I exercised yesterday, what do you think I did? You have no idea what I did. Why? because the term exercise is just an umbrella term for thousands of other activities. And you choose those specific exercises based on the fitness outcomes you want. If you want really strong legs as a fitness outcomes, maybe you choose squats as an exercise. If you want high levels of endurance as a fitness outcome, maybe you choose interval training as an exercise. Mindfulness and meditation have the same relationship. 
not every meditation leads to mindfulness as an outcome. I could take you on an elaborate meditation where you're imagining yourself walking along a pristine beach and you can hear the waves crashing and you can see the sun just peeking up over the horizon. And that could be a very powerful meditation to get you into, you know, super, super relaxed. But that's not a mindfulness meditation. That's not doing anything for your level of mindfulness. It's a guided visualization meditation. Very useful, not mindfulness. I could give you a syllable, a word, a phrase, or even a series of phrases to repeat over and over again, out loud or in your head. And these can be some very powerful meditations to get you into some really interesting states of mind, relaxed states, trance-like states, even cultivate empathy and compassion. All very useful things, but those aren't mindfulness meditations. There's two primary types of meditations used in tandem that serve to boost one's level of mindfulness. One's called focused attention, the other one's called open monitoring or sometimes called open awareness. We only have time to do one today, so we'll do a focused attention meditation. And if you recall from the beginning of the session, I shared with you that you don't have to add anything into your life in order to practice mindfulness. And so we're going to focus on for this meditation are the physical sensations of breathing. And anytime our minds wander away, we're going to notice what our minds got caught in and we're going to bring our attention to noticing the sensations of breathing again. And when you do that, it's called an awareness of breath meditation. And so we'll do it right now. Wherever you happen to be, I invite you just to sit up a bit more straight in your chairs and allow your feet to be flat on the floor if that's available to you. You can place your hands anywhere that feels comfortable. If you're seated at a desk or a table, you could set your hands there. You could set your hands in your lap if that's comfortable. If you're sitting with a chair that has arms, you can set your arms and hands on the arms of the chair. You do not have to hold your hands in any special way. That's not going to make you a better meditator. And I would invite you to close your eyes if that feels comfortable for you. Otherwise, you can lower your gaze and soften your focus. And the whole point behind closing the eyes for this particular exercise is just to eliminate visual distraction. Okay, so we're sitting up a bit more straight, feet flat on the floor, eyes closed perhaps. And as we settle into this exercise, I invite you just to notice any sensations at all that you can perceive where the floor is supporting your feet. You might notice sensations of pressure where the floor is supporting your feet. You might notice tingling sensations there. Perhaps you notice warmth or coolness some kind of a temperature perception with the floor supporting your feet. Or you may notice there's a lack of sensation with the floor supporting your feet. If that's the case, it's perfectly fine. We're not trying to make any sensations happen. We're just noticing what's here. And now becoming aware of the fact that you're breathing. Shifting your attention to focus wherever you can feel the physical sensations of breathing most prominently. That might be noticing the sensation of air moving in and out of your nose as you inhale and exhale. It could be noticing the sensations associated with the rising and falling of your chest or your abdomen. Any of these is perfectly fine to focus on for this exercise. 
And if you're having any trouble noticing where you feel these sensations most prominently, it's okay to go ahead and take one or two deeper breaths intentionally. Just to get a sense of where you feel these sensations most prominently, release the impulse to control or manipulate the breath from this point on. This is not a breathing exercise. It's not yogic breathing or box breathing or 478 breathing. This is an exercise of attention and awareness. And so we're focusing on the physical sensations of the in breath for its full duration and the out breath for its full duration. After a few moments, you may find the mind gets lost in a thought. Maybe it's a judgment about the exercise you're doing right now or how well you think you're doing it. Or perhaps it's thinking about what's still on your to-do list for today or maybe a memory or a regret or something else. When this happens, it's not a mistake. Simply notice what the mind got caught in and then gently and firmly guide your attention back to focusing on the physical sensations of breathing. And this mind wandering will happen again and again and again. So if the mind wanders 500, 5,000, or 50,000 times, simply noticing what the mind got caught in and escorting your attention back to the breath each and every time. And whenever you're ready, beginning to open the eyes if you've closed them, taking a moment to get your bearings before bringing your attention back into the conference. And so what could that do for us? What could noticing the sensations of breathing do for anyone? Well, here are the results of eight weeks of mindfulness training that I've tracked through pre and post course surveys. And these are six of over 70 things that we typically track. And I mean, like obviously having more energy would be great. Being able to think more clearly amidst a distracting world, that's probably a key differentiator in navigating the modern world. 14% reduction in rumination. If you ever wondered why the most elite athletes in the world train their brains in this way, that's one of the primary reasons. Could you imagine a major league baseball pitcher throws a pitch, batter hits a home run, and that pitcher just gets caught up in rumination for the next 20 or 30 minutes? I can't believe I made such a stupid mistake. Ah, what an idiot. What's wrong with me? And he ruminates like that for the next, you know, two or three batters. You think he would even be in the major leagues? I doubt it. Not with that level of an untrained mind. Feeling more balanced between work life and home life. I mean, how could that happen? 
How could any of these things happen by noticing the physical sensations of breathing? Well, let's look at what skills you're building when you do a basic awareness of breath practice. So once we got settled in, I invited you to notice the sensations of air coming in and out of your nose. Now, maybe you noticed that the air coming in your nose was cooler in temperature than the air as it exited your nose. Now, that's a subtle sensation you might have noticed. And if you didn't notice it, that's perfectly fine. And if you're checking right now to see if that's true, is the air that comes in my nose cooler than the air that comes out? That's fine as well. But this ability to notice at more granular levels of detail, this is an innate human skill. No one's cornered the market on mindfulness. This is a skill all humans have, and we can cultivate it through practices. So you're noticing the sensations of breathing, and some thoughts are going to eventually start to bubble up. And eventually, you will get caught up in one of them, get lost in thought. Whether you've been meditating for two weeks, two years, two decades, doesn't matter. You will get lost in thought. You know, so you'll be noticing the sensations of breathing. And, you know, we were just talking about our friend a few minutes ago, our best friend. So maybe an image of your best friend pops up into your head. And that makes you think about the person they're dating. And you think, I really don't care for the person my best friend's dating. And you think, what would I do if they mistreat my friend? Whoa, if I did that, I might get in trouble. I don't want to get in trouble. I have a great thing going. I don't want to mess that up. And then 10 seconds later, you're planning your escape from Alcatraz. This is what the brain does. It creates these elaborate stories. We eventually get lost in thought and we bring our attention back. It's kind of like when we go online just to check our email and 10 minutes later, we're looking up Illuminati conspiracy theories. We have no idea how we got there or we're 15 pages deep into Pinterest. No idea how we got there. It's just a habit of mind, right? So we get lost in thought. We notice what the mind got caught in and we begin to reorient our attention back to the breath. And as soon as we do that, practicing the skill of letting go of a thought stream. I imagine there are a few people out there that have probably gotten in an argument before. You've probably been in an argument that lasted, I don't know, two or three minutes. But then for the next two or three hours or days, you're still coming up with comebacks you really wish you would have used in that argument or comebacks you're going to put in your back pocket for the argument you already anticipate having with this person in the future. And wouldn't it be great to be able to set down those ruminating thoughts and focus on what's most important and pick them up if you want to later? Or maybe you're just, you know, trying to get a good night's sleep. You're staring at the ceiling, ruminating about this issue. Can't do anything about it now. Wouldn't it be great to set down those ruminating thoughts, get a good night's sleep, and then pick them up in the morning when you can do something about it if you want to? That's a skill you're cultivating every time you do this exercise. And then every time you notice what the mind got caught in, and this is an important caveat, through consistent practice over time, you'll begin to become much more aware of your own habits of mind and patterns of thinking. You see, we all have these neuropathways in our brains that are like well-worn ruts in a road, causing us to think many of the same thoughts we had yesterday and the day before that and the day before that, particularly self-referential thoughts, the thoughts and beliefs we have about ourselves. But many of these thoughts are, are hovering below the level of our conscious awareness, and yet they have a huge impact on our behavior and the things we think are available to, to us in this life. And so through this process, we begin to become more aware of these habits and patterns. And it's not until you become aware of something that you can do anything about it. And then every time you return your attention back to the breath and keep it there, you're enhancing your skill of focus, of concentration, being able to keep your attention where you want it to be, not where social media wants it to be or traditional media or where marketers want your attention to be, but where you want your attention to be. And so this whole cycle 
It's like doing a pull-up or a push-up for your brain. And so if you don't like the term mindfulness or meditation, if you think those terms are too soft or too hippy-dippy or too new-agey for you, you can just discard them. They're merely labels. You can call it attention training. You can call it mental conditioning like they do in professional sports and elite military units. You're just training your mind in a different way. And so that first exercise I went over with you was a formal mindfulness meditation. Set aside specific time each day to do it. This next exercise is an informal practice. You can use it really anytime. It's called the stop practice. And I modified it a little bit from the original by Elisha Goldstein. Now you can use this exercise between meetings, right? You know, if you have back-to-back meetings like I do, you have 60 seconds. You can use it to reset and recenter. You can use it in the middle of a conversation if things are getting a little heated and you want to respond thoughtfully as opposed to reacting automatically. So it's an acronym. S stands for stop. You just stop for a moment. Give yourself time to do the exercise. T stands for take a breath. And notice the sensations of breathing just like we did in that earlier exercise. And if you have time, you can notice two breaths or three. And then O stands for observe. Observe something in your external environment. Right? Maybe you notice your coffee cup, the shape color of it, right? Just engage with something externally and then observe your internal weather pattern, right? What thoughts are here? What emotions? Not trying to suppress them or push them away, but just observing the fact that they're here. And then P stands for pose and proceed. Pose the question to yourself, what's important now? And then use what comes up in response to that question to help inform how you proceed so that you can proceed with intention. So you can respond thoughtfully as opposed to reacting automatically. And so one place I use this is between home time and work time because I'm working from home and there's not, a, there's not a bright line between my home time and where I work time. And so when I'm about to make that transition, I stop, take a breath, observe, pose the question, what's important now? And for me in that moment, what often comes up is I want to be as present as possible for my wife and son. And then I move into that part of my day. Now, does that mean when I'm in that part of my day, I never have to take a client phone call or do some kind of a client work? Of course, it doesn't mean that. I live and work in the real world and I have to do that from time to time, sometimes a lot. But if I don't practice these exercises and build this foundation, I'm much more likely to be reaching for my phone, whether it's beeping or buzzing or not, or thinking about work when I'm not doing it. And you know, my son may want to come up to me at the end of his day and tell me a story. And it may be the only story he wants to tell me all day. But I could be so into my phone or into thinking about work that he turns around in the middle of that story and walks away. And I might not even register that that interaction even happened. It's certainly going to register in his young mind. That's not an experience I'm keen to give him or my wife. And so how can mindfulness help with something like work-life balance? I may only have two or three hours a night with my family. It could be two to three hours of constantly distracted, barely there type of presence. Or it could be two to three hours of true presence where I'm there in body and in mind, truly engaging with them. Doing these exercises isn't just going to change my score on some pre and post course survey. And it's not just going to change my experience of those two or three hours. It's actually going to change their experience of those same two to three hours. And that's the power of something like mindfulness. It doesn't just impact the practitioner, it impacts everyone around you. And so whether you're a partner or a spouse or or a parent or a colleague to someone, your mindfulness practice not only impacts you, it impacts everyone around you. When we first started, I shared with you my personal journey 
Well, you are on an unknown but promising journey as well. And it's going to be full of successes and accolades and love. And it's going to have its fair share of setbacks, failure, and heartache. I would encourage you to be present for them all. For just as you can't truly know sweet without also knowing sour, it's our challenges in life that make our achievements so fulfilling. And don't miss all the small, subtle, seemingly trivial moments between your to-dos, your tasks, and your lofty goals. Those goals and tasks are important, to be sure. Just like the finale is a very important part of the symphony. But the point just isn't just to get to the end of the symphony as fast as possible. Each note, high or low, and even the silence between those notes is the point. Without all of those elements, we wouldn't have any music at all. It's kind of like dancing. The point of dancing isn't to get from one spot on the dance floor over to a different spot on the dance floor. The point is in the dancing itself. So enjoy your journey. It's not going to look like your plan or your expectations. But that's okay. Each of those moments, high or low, is a note in the symphony of your life. Be grateful for them. Be present for them. You don't want to get to the end of that journey like the end of that car ride having missed most of it because you were lost in thought. Look, mindfulness isn't just going to, you know, help increase your emotional intelligence and make you a better leader. It's not just going to help you navigate the inevitable ups and downs of life with a bit more resilience and a bit less stress. It's not just going to help you catch and release unhelpful internal dialogue and other psychological barriers to your success and happiness. It'll do all those things. But what it'll also do is help you greet the last moments of your journey, knowing that you were awake for the whole show. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is one of the sweetest fruits of mindfulness. And with that, I thank you. And thank you again, Doro and Tricia. It's a pleasure to be here with you. I really got so much out of that talk, as we always do. Thank you, Cliff, for being here and for being an incredible teacher. I really enjoyed hearing his story. Comfort zones are where dreams go to die. That is pretty insightful. I'm probably not going to jump out of a plane anytime (laughs) soon, but I really did enjoy that. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well. To experience this talk with all the videos, slides, and graphics, visit our store at bbnrconsulting.us. Thanks for staying curious and for living your best life with us.